the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. How we love our kids, the five love styles of parenting. And, and Richard reminds me, aren't you going to let listeners know, by the way, that Mylon is one of the co-hosts on New Life Live? And I thought, yeah, you know, that's that that's that over 40 thing again that I, I keep reading about. <laughs> Indeed, of course, the program with our good friend Steve Otterburn, weekday afternoons at 1 p.m. right here on KFAX. And and, and a, a million apologies, uh, Mylon, if I may. <laughs> oh, no, not necessary at all. Hey, as we're talking all. about these styles here, I, I like what you said just prior to the break, the notion that so often we approach this from the standpoint of trying to fix our kids, when if at first we would focus on, well, dare I dare say it, fix our parenting styles, sure. there might be the real key. Give us some insights from both of your perspectives, if you would, uh, as we kind of sit down and look at the list. We have to analyze, of course, uh, mom's parenting style, dad's parenting style, and then where do we go from there? Well, I think when Jesus spoke to the Pharisees in um, uh, the Gospels, uh, uh, he said to them, you know, the pupil cannot rise above the teacher, but when fully trained will be just like the teacher. Mm. And he was saying that to them uh, after he called them blind guides. And he said, you know, the people of Israel can't see me because you can't see me. And he said, they're not going to get any higher or more elevated in their capacities than you. And I think it's a good passage to help us understand that how we're trained is about as far as we're going to go until we choose to get further training. So, again, as a pleaser, I was a fear-based parent. The vacillators are very shame-based parents, and they also fluctuate between being overly and uh, often rescuing and intrusive with their child to distant and angry, and so they, they vacillate back and forth. And the avoiders tend to be very much about task and mastery. And this can also, Craig, create a, a triangulation in the marriage where uh, the rescuing parent is, is more empathetic and has more, shall we say, um, uh, empath, em, empathy for the child. And then the avoider is less you know, empathic, and then the parents are arguing about what should happen to the child without stopping and asking, are you balanced and am I balanced <laughs> you know, in our assessments? And maybe, as you said earlier, we need to ask and balance each other out a little bit more. This really needs to be a team effort. In other words, this is not dad picking on mom or vice versa. Well, it sure happens a lot. (laughs) Yeah, it does happen a lot. And I I think an important question, we ask a great diagnostic question in our first book, which looks at these love styles in marriage. You know, do you have a memory of comfort from your own childhood where a parent saw that you were distressed and they noticed that you were emotionally upset about something and they sought you out and really listened to you and drew out your heart and you know, offered comfort, so you left that experience feeling relief. And surprisingly, about 80% of our audiences don't have one memory like that. So comfort is a big part of emotional connection, and avoiders don't know how to do it, and pleasers are afraid of negative feelings. They avoid them. You know, vacillators are so preoccupied that they often aren't able to give their kids comfort because they're trying to comfort themselves. And, and their world is either good or bad. Yeah. It's just all good or all bad. 
And then that last file that we haven't even talked about yet, you know, the people that come from really difficult homes that end up being controllers or victims, um, you know, they they just don't have any memories. In fact, the thing, they didn't get comfort. They actually got, their parents were stress makers instead of stress reducers. Um, so this whole idea of learning to emotionally connect and, and comfort each other um, was really transforming for us in our marriage, and it really helped us um, learn how to emotionally connect to our kids as well. And a lot of this, Kay, does it come down to learning how to bring about a balance of the good things from all five love styles? Is that what the goal is here in the end? I think the goal is to really look at your love style as an injury. In other words, as an avoider, I didn't get emotional connection in my family, and I was very unable to do it with my own kids. When I realized that, I had to take responsibility for that lack of training in my own home, and I had to learn to know what my feelings were. I had to learn to be able to articulate them. And the more comfortable I got in expressing emotions and accepting comfort for myself, the more I was able to do it for my children. So each of these styles sort of is representative of an injury from your own family. And taking responsibility to really understand that and how it hampers your parenting and and growing towards a more um, secure um, style where you really have the capacity to uh, connect and to relate um, on an emotional level and to listen well. Um, you know, so often we see our kids' behavior and we just react to the behavior without ever saying, why is this child behaving this way? What stresses them? We don't ask enough questions to even sometimes understand that. And, you know, this is such an important key because, Mylon, you touched on this earlier. I mean, certainly from an empowerment standpoint, and this is true in any relationship, the one that we have control over ultimately is ourselves. If we start working on ourselves, understanding our parenting style, seeing the benefits, uh, the disadvantages, and, and beginning to work on that, that certainly is the one key that we can control. But I suppose, too, there's also the dynamic here, as much as there is the parenting style, then there's just the kid's style, so to speak, the kid's personality. In the book, you talk about the free-spirited, the determined, the sensitive, the introverted, the premature. Then I guess there's sort of the meshing of your parenting style with the child's, how would we say it, Mylon, parenting needs? Well, I think parenting needs is a very good term. I wished we would have used that in the book. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yes, you're right. It's um, Every child's unique, and a lot of people, especially in evangelical Christianity, want to create cookie-cutter formulas for how to raise a kid. And some kids are what we call a highly sensitive child, and, and they they are perhaps sensitive to touch and light and sounds, and, and they're fussier and... And yet if they're put into the same plan as, as a child who's not that way, they, they really cave under the pressure and their life is not a happy one. Uh, I think we can have the same standards but different approaches to each child. There needs to be a lot of flexibility then because your parenting style may not match their parenting needs and every child within the family, three, four, five kids, whatever, may all indeed as unique individuals have different needs. Oh, absolutely. You know, that's so true. And, you know, I think anybody who's had more than one child realizes the, the truth of that, but in the same respect, we all do need to be really understood and loved and known, and, you know, we ask a question in our seminars, how many of you felt you had parents who deeply knew you, um, knew what made you tick, knew what your likes and dislikes were, um, 
knew what your struggles and stresses were. And again, there's a there's a just a minority of people who raise their hands, and so every child really needs to be deeply known and valued and loved. And um, to the degree that we receive that as kids, you know, then we know how to do it. But if we didn't have parents who deeply knew us, then we're we're going to be lacking those skills. So this is really a, a even book. awareness. And awareness. That's right. Um, I mean, I parented for 15 years with no awareness that I was really parenting as an avoider. And my last, the fourth child, um, got the best of us. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you can see her ability to emotionally connect and be able to articulate feelings and um, listen well uh, is just at a higher level. And I would suspect, too, here in the end, you know, it takes time. It takes an investment because you're getting to not only know the parenting style of your spouse, but also the unique individual needs of your kids. And obviously that number and time increases exponentially based on the size of your family. Uh, but that said, I would imagine, Mylon, we shouldn't feel overwhelmed by this task. I think we need to feel like I can start any time to get better. Um, there's uh, a, a very prominent physician some years ago who said, you know, if we provide good enough parenting, um, it it will be adequate. Uh, We're not trying to be the super parent, and we're not trying to be the worst one on the block either. We're trying to get better and improve. And this thing called sanctification that the Bible talks about, that we should be growing over the course of a lifetime, we ask many people in our audiences, how many of you ever felt as though your parents were growing over the course of your childhood and adolescence? And again, very few hands go up, you know, that I never saw growth. So it's a gradual thing, isn't it? You know, the concept of growth in the Bible, it's like seasons and time and fruit and fruit bearing. It's, it's, a, it's a function of time and growth. The book, again, is entitled How We Love Our Kids, The Five Love Styles of Parenting, One Small Change in You, One Big Change in Your Kids. The new book, by the way, published by Waterbrook, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. Also more information on both the ministry of Mylon and Kay and information on the book on their website, howwelove.com. That's howwelove.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. At a boss years ago, when I was just a young buck, a lot of years ago, <laughs> who said to me when he was going to be out of town and uh, leaving me in charge, he said, now, Craig, if something comes up, if there's some sort of an emergency or a problem or an issue that develops, I would rather you do something to address it, even if that something is wrong, then rather do nothing at all. Pretty solid advice, I think, and I've carried that with me all these years. I think that that same viewpoint perhaps might be apropos to the tens of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Christians who every year continue to struggle with the big question. Meaning, what exactly does God have in store for me? What is his plan for my life. We know that God has a plan. A lot of folks feel as if he's not been willing to share that plan. And so as a result, we kind of sit back idly, quietly, doing absolutely nothing, waiting for, I don't know, sky riding in the sky, the thunderous voice of God to awaken us one night 
something of a significant sign, and I have to wonder if maybe the advice that was given to me by my boss many, many years ago might be the same advice that God might offer anyone who is struggling to try and identify their calling, what God's will is for their life, that he would rather you do something than absolutely nothing. Joining me now is Johnny Moore. He is chief of staff to Mark Burnett, Roma Downey. Of course, Mark is creator of a number of um, award-winning series. You'll recognize Survivor, Amazing Rays, the Bible miniseries, the movie, The Son of God. He spent many years serving as both campus pastor and senior vice president of Liberty University. He's made a big change, and he's detailing not just his own personal experience, but helps to answer this big question of what it is that I'm supposed to do with my life. We welcome Johnny Moore to the conversation. Johnny, great to have you with us today. Thanks, Craig. Good to be with you. This is a, this is a question I think that all of us struggle with, certainly as believers. Sometimes we, we struggle with it at multiple times and occasions in our life as the circumstances around us change. This notion of trying to ascertain what exactly is that God wants me to do with my life. I think it's encouraging to see so many Christians that want to be sensitive to the Lord's will, but frustrating that so many will waste sometimes weeks, months, years, a lifetime, never really quite feeling as if they've gotten an answer to that question. Yeah, and I think the word you just used there is the key word. They're expecting to feel like they have an answer to this question. And you know, one of the reasons why I wrote my book, What Am I Supposed to Do With My Life, is because you know, I, I think we spend way too much time feeling and not enough time doing. And you know, this question of God's will is a lot easier than we make it when we actually look at what Scripture says about it. Let's spend some time talking about this. Um, again, there's this notion, and you talk about it in the book, and we've got a couple of choices here. Uh, we can either wait until God gets us started, or we can go until he stops us. So one thing for sure I find out, certainly this has been true in my own life experience, that if I'm heading down the wrong road, the Lord will surely close a door. Yeah, you know, I, I wrote this book in part because I spent a dozen years at Liberty University with, with you know, thousands of college students that I was trying to influence and trying to lead them and teach them and get them prepared for life. And my door in my office as campus pastor and senior vice president of Liberty was just rolling with students that were, that were struggling with this question. And to a student, nearly every single one would say, you know, I just wish God would show me what to do with my life. God, just show me what I'm supposed to do. And, and they were waiting on the sidelines of life for God to just send them the blinking sign from the sky, for God to fire the gun in the air and say, go. And you know, what, one of the points I make, make in my book, what am I supposed to do with my life, is that God's will is more about going until he stops you, not waiting for him to tell you to go. And, you know, and people push back on that and say, you know, well, that's not, that's not what the Bible teaches, but, but actually it's all over the Bible. And the quintessential example is the Apostle Paul. You know, you don't see Paul praying, asking God whether he should go to Athens or, uh, or you know, Philippi. He just goes. He goes to the places where the people were, and then occasionally God stops him along the road of life. And so I think far too many Christians are sort of waiting on the sidelines of life for God to tell them to go, and they really need to start going and expect God to not open doors as much as shut them. Is there a big practical side to all of this? And, and, and maybe you can answer this question in relationship to um, your own life experience. You, you've made a major career shift from having spent time within academia, 
counseling, pastoral responsibilities there on campus at Liberty, your your service as a senior VP of Liberty University, now working in Hollywood and in, in film production with, with some remarkably talented individuals, but many might argue that these are kind of, you know, opposite ends of sort of the uh, the um, life skills, life work continuum. I, I would wonder from your own experience, if you had an inkling 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, that God would have you where you are at today, if God had laid out this very perfect roadmap at the very beginning and saying, Johnny, at some point you will be here. Are there a lot of people for whom that would so frighten them to death that they would run in the opposite direction? Well, I'll tell you, I wouldn't have believed God if he would have told me that I would have ended up here doing what I'm doing. But but isn't that what's interesting? I mean, God works in these strange and mysterious ways. And, you know, the the first point I make in the book, which I think is the, the biblical principle when it comes to the will of God, is that God's will is more about who you are than where you are or what you're doing. Mm. It's more about who you are than where you are or what you're doing. You know, this phrase, God's will, that we use all the time, right? I mean, it's one of the most frequently used phrases in Christianity, yet it's not used as frequently in the Bible. It's only used a few times, and its primary usage in the New Testament is when Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica, this is God's will, that you be sanctified. He didn't say, this is God's will, that you live in this place or that you do this thing. I I think God's will, biblically speaking, is more about your character. It's more about who you are than where you are or what you're doing. And so, you know, and so here I am. You know, some some people think, did Johnny leave ministry, right? Because he was a pastor, and now he's working in Hollywood and, and, you know, film and television. And and actually, it's quite quite the contrary. I mean, you know, know, God led me to work with with Mark Burnett and Roma Downey, and they're producing unbelievable things. I mean, this Easter Sunday on NBC, a full television series called A.D. will be debuting, and it's the the story of the birth of the church in the book of Acts, right? And, And so, you know, somehow God was preparing me for something I didn't know, and then he just sort of interrupted me on the road of life, and he led me a direction, and he didn't stop me, and here I am. You know, you make an excellent point, I think, because so often, particularly in terms of of the context in which we try to sort of box in God and the definition of what it means to be uh, called or to be in, actively engaged in some sort of a ministerial vocation or, or ascertaining God's will for your life, there tends to be, I think, sometimes the misperception that a call always comes with a title, that it, God is preparing me, God's will is that I be a pastor or an evangelist or a missionary. But I think as you're suggesting, Johnny, um, your role in fulfilling God's will for your life doesn't always come with a title, does it? No, it doesn't. And, you know, in fact, you know, the famous missionary in Scripture is the Apostle Paul, but he wasn't actually a missionary in the way that we think of missionaries today. He was a tent maker. You know, he didn't, he didn't live on the support of churches, you know, to, to preach the gospel and give his, give his ministry around the world. He actually had a job. He made tents as he traveled around the Roman Empire in the, in the, in the Jewish world at the time. You know, preaching the gospel as he went. And so, you know, in fact, there's this, this really, really interesting moment where, you know, God's doing remarkable, remarkable things. Thousands of people are coming to Christ, and everybody wants to stop what they're doing. They want to leave their jobs, and they want to become preachers like the Apostle Paul. And what Paul says to them, he writes to the church uh, at Corinth, he says, no, no, don't do that. Stay in your job, because that's where God put you. He put you to be a light in that place. And so, you know, I, I think we really, really get in trouble when we think that, you know, in order to honor God or to do ministry or to preach the gospel or these very spiritual things, you've got to be like a pastor or a missionary. And actually, you know, if you study why the church grew as quickly as it did in the first century, 
you know, one of the reasons why it grew so quickly is because there were Christians everywhere doing everything. They had totally, were every part of society. They were just living and working normal, everyday lives, but they were the lights of the world, making the world a better place as they, they went along. And so I, I think this, this question of God's will gets a little, little messy when we think that if we're going to honor God, then we have to do these very ministerial things. But actually, a lot of times what God wants to, to do is not sort of leave the secular world, so to speak, but, but to be light and salt within it. That might be the call. Well, and you make an excellent point in terms of looking at the life of Paul um, or, or so many figures that we see throughout particularly New Testament Scripture, that it, it was less so about them knowing going into all of this what it was that God was going to raise them up to do, and rather more about them just going and doing. There was less focus on uh, trying to understand that, you know, Paul, I'm someday going to become the principal writer of the New Testament. No, that, <laughs> that wasn't part of the game for him at all. It was about who he was in his relationship with Christ and simply moving forward. And, and maybe therein lies the key for a lot of us, understanding that God's will is, is not about what you do as much as it is about who you are. Many of those lessons inside the pages of the book we're discussing today with Johnny Moore, it's called, What Am I Supposed to Do With My Life? God's Will Demystified. We'll take a brief time out. We're going to come back to more of our conversation with Johnny tonight. And as we do so, answer the ageless question. Is this about an event? Or is it more about process? That is this edition of Lifeline Continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation tonight. Johnny Moore served as campus pastor and senior vice president of Liberty University for many years. He is now chief of staff to Mark Burnett and Roma Downey and um, has written inside the pages of his new book, What Am I Supposed to Do With My Life? Newly released, by the way, by Thomas Nelson and available at the usual suspects, including Amazon.com. In the book, we talk about this entire issue of how to demystify God's will. And toward that end, and this kind of harkens back to what you mentioned just prior to the break, Johnny, the sense that we kind of look for an understanding of God's will for our life as an event, but is it really more of a process? Absolutely. I I think this is where we get so wrong with this question. We're we're expecting God to to drop a blinking light from the sky and tell us what to do and where to go, And, and that's not what the Bible teaches is the normal course of things when it comes to the will of God. God's will is more about who you are than where you are or, or what you're doing. And, and, and by the way, we think that, you know, expecting these miracles and these supernatural things to get us going is like a very holy and righteous thing to do. You know, but when you, when you read the Bible, I mean, you, you see some pretty interesting things. I mean, like, Jesus said that a wicked and adulterous generation seeks a sign. That, that's what he said. You know, and, and we think it's like really, really a holy and righteous and very spiritual thing to do, to pray and pray and pray for God to show us where to go and what to do. But see, if God just showed us where to go and what to do all the time, it wouldn't require that we live by faith. So he doesn't do that. He stays quiet, and he forces us to jump out of the nest that he's made for us. And he's always there waiting to swoop us if we need help, but he's never going to let us sit there until... Everything is guaranteed. How much of this is passion 
driven, uh, following one's passion, something that uh, I'm sure you talked about with um, campus students there at Liberty University for, for many years. Is that an important key component? I mean, it just seems to me that no matter where you wind up and whether or not we're talking about a, a religious calling or a secular calling, if you don't have passion for what you do, you're really not going to be very effective at it. And, and I think certainly a lot of folks can easily ascertain if they, if they don't understand what God's will is for them precisely so, they can certainly sit down and articulate, maybe even on an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper, what they're passionate about, can't they? Yes, and God puts that in our hearts. I, you know, I believe God made us with these things in our hearts, and, and I don't think that it is, you know, biblical to think that you have to sacrifice all of these desires in order to, to be in the center of the will of God. I think it's actually quite the opposite. I think very often... God allows us to couple our passion with our experience to do great things in the world. And so sometimes it's not running from it, it's running towards it. Mm. But if you're running towards it, what if there's a, a fork in the road? What, what if there's a couple of uh, multiple paths that seem right, or multiple arenas where you, you have uh, a multiplicity of passions? Then what? Then you pick one. You just pick one. You know, I, I think a lot of times that we, we believe that if you do one path, you're right, and one path, you're wrong. And, and by the way, I'm not talking about the moral will of God. You know, I, I'm not talking about things that the Bible clearly says are right and things the Bible clearly says are wrong. You know, that, that's a different conversation. Of course, God doesn't want you to do the things that he says are wrong in, in his word. But when it comes to these big life decisions, I think oftentimes... God gives us the freedom to choose. And so while we, while we beg and plead for God to show us which fork to take in the road, you know, God's standing on the sidelines sometimes saying, you'll just make a decision. But, but by the way, this is why the first principle about God's will is so important, that God's will is more about who you are than where you are or what you're doing, because you, you've got to work on who first. You work on who you are as a person to make sure you know, your heart's where it needs to be, that you're prepared, that you're someone that whatever path you're going on, you're going you're gonna to take a good path because you're going to be a good and God-honoring person. But I think we get mixed up sometimes, and we, we start thinking of these sort of decisional will of God and the way we think of the moral will of God. And God gave us freedom, not as a curse, but as a gift. We look, for example, and you talk about this in the book, What Am I Supposed to Do With My Life?, about Gideon and the fleece. And, and I certainly in my years as a believer, I've heard a lot of young believers who are struggling with this very topic that will ponder the idea of, well, maybe I need to lay a fleece before the Lord. Now, whether or not they actually go out and do that on the front lawn and wait to see if it's got dew on it the next morning, I don't know. But there is, I think, that some sense that they're looking for some way, some sort of of, of external sign that this is exactly where God wants them to be. But at the end of the day, isn't this more about what's going on inside of your own heart and having that, that sense of this is right, uh, that, that check in your spirit? Well, listen, I mean, we've all done this, right? I mean, I, I have. I, you know, I, prayed, I prayed that prayer. You know, I prayed for the fleece. And, you know, God, I laid out my fleece, and I'm standing, and I'm waiting for you to do your thing. But, you know, when we go back and actually read the story, you know, one of the first things you discover is God ain't too happy about Gideon's fleece. <laughs> because God's a God of grace. He tolerated Gideon's fleece laying. But, but you know, that's, that's not, it didn't make him very happy. And, and I think the same thing's, same thing's true in our lives. I mean, God's patient with us. He, he, 
he knew what he was getting himself in, himself into when he, he invited us into his family. But he expects more of us. He expects us not to have to lay out the fleece to trust him. He expects us to walk by faith, to go in the logical direction and expect God to be with us every step of the way. That and, you know, faith is, is such a key component. You discuss it at length in the book. You also touch on another topic that I think is critically germane to this discussion, which we're going to pick up on right after the break, and that is not only the importance of, of following God by faith, but also having that sense of dedication, uh, the commitment, what we want to call it, uh, stick to that we can be consistent in what it is that we are doing and what it is that God has called us to do. And oftentimes, I think people struggle with trying to answer the question of what am I supposed to do with my life? Because even as maybe God has opened up doors and shown us the way, we've failed to recognize it because we've simply not been willing to pay the price. We've not been willing to make the commitment. We'll talk about that as our discussion with Johnny Moore continues. The book, What Am I Supposed to Do With My Life? God's Will, Demystified, newly published by Thomas Nelson. A timeout, back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're visiting today with Johnny Moore. Johnny, by the way, is chief of staff to Mark Burnett and Roma Downey. Of course, you know Mark's work. You're familiar with uh, all the big hits, Survivor, Amazing Race, the Bible miniseries, the movie Son of God. Lots of great, amazing stuff that no doubt that you have enjoyed. Well, Johnny's written a new book called What Am I Supposed to Do With My Life? God's Will Demystified, which, by the way, you can pick up at Amazon.com um, or through you know local bookstores and so on and so forth. Uh, Johnny, let's talk about a couple of key principles. You spend a lot of time in the book talking about the issue of commitment. Tell me why. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. When I decided to write a book on God's will, I, I expected to write a whole book on God's will, because this is a really, really big and important question. But as I really dug into the question, you know, what does the Bible actually say about God's will, I, you know, I was surprised to discover it says a whole lot less than we make of it. And it, actually, it's not that hard of a question. It's a pretty simple question to answer. You know, God's will is more about who you are than where you are and what you're doing, and it's more about going until God stops you and stop waiting for him to tell you to go. But actually, what I was struck by was that most of us, if we knew what God's will was in the first place, we would be committed to it, because we have major, major commitment issues in this world that we're living in now. And so, so I ended up devoting the whole second half of my book on God's will to commitment, you know, why we struggle with commitment, how we need to be commitment, how commitment is actually the answer to the question, what is God's will? It's not about who you, it's not about where you are, what you're doing, it's about, you know, whoever you are, wherever you are, and whatever you're doing, being committed to it. And, you know, I, we, we referenced Paul earlier. Imagine how different his story might have turned out had after one or two rough spots along the road, which I think he would admit were legion <laughs> during his his time of ministry, if he just said, "Oh, this is too much work," and I, I don't, you know, I, I used to be on the persecuting side. I'm not, I'm not really up for this being persecuted business. So I'm just, I'm out of here. God, you can go find somebody else. Um, that that story of his life and his impact on the early church might have been quite different had he not been committed. You know, this is a a sort of under-recognized value in the society that we're living in today. And, 
and actually it's at the very, very heart of Christianity. I mean, this, this, this attitude of being committed to Jesus Christ, whatever the circumstances, was the hallmark of Christianity. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't a, you know, subsidiary issue, a tertiary issue. It wasn't something that some Christians had as a distinct characteristic of their lives. I mean, Christianity grew up where it was either you'd be committed or you're not a Christian at all. And, it cost you something. And, and by the way, it doesn't cost a lot in the United States of America today, but, but in lots of countries in the world, it still costs a lot. You know, if you go to Iraq or Syria and you, you walk around and meet the Christian communities there that are under tremendous persecution, perhaps even eradication if something doesn't happen, their faith isn't something that they just do because they believe it. You know, they, they do it because it's so down deep inside of who they are. They, they just can't imagine not doing it. And yeah, and, and that's where I think, you know, our, our, our obsession with the question of God's will is sometimes a pretty selfish question. It's all about us, and it's never actually going to be what we're hoping we're going to get when we answer the question until we make it all about Jesus. And when we make it all about Jesus, it's going to require commitment. Well, it and takes way, back to you. a spiritual thing. And it takes us, I think, Johnny, back to your point earlier, and that is this is not about what we do, it's about who we are, because there are going to be times where we're going to fail in what we do. I mean, imagine if you sit down with either Roma or Mark, who today many of us recognize as being incredible um, producers and and, and actresses in the case of Roma. there's got to be a backstory there of all of the failures that either everybody has forgotten or doesn't know anything about. Now, imagine after a failed project or two, if Mark had just said, well, this is not for me, this this can't be my calling because I've had a failure here on my hand, so what's next? Imagine what things might look be looked like today if he had, had taken that attitude. Well, and this is the story of human history, right? I mean, sure. all of the people in all of history that have done things of great significance, you know, have, have had their ups and downs. They, you, know, you, you don't bat a thousand every time. You know, my, my, one of my favorite quotes I, I've ever read is, is from Winston Churchill, where you know, Churchill said that success in life is often nothing more than moving from one failure to the next with undiminished enthusiasm. <laughs> and, and by the way, this is a very Christian idea. I mean, it was the Bible that says that the righteous fall seven times, and they get back up. And you don't measure a man or a woman by how talented they are or how wealthy they are, but rather by what it takes to discourage someone. That's how you measure worth in this, in this world we're living in. And, and I, I think we're just sort of weak people these days. I mean, we, we've, we've forgotten that it just takes good old hard work to get to places. And sometimes we make decisions, and then by our hard work, we make those decisions good decisions, even if they might not have been the best decisions to begin with. All right, let's bring some balance to this, because there's also an issue here, I think, that underlies part of what you're saying, and that is the issue of self-honesty. For example, there's somebody that I knew many years ago who felt as if they had been called to be a vocalist, and they wanted to be a vocalist within the church. And so they would volunteer any Sunday service that they wanted somebody to do a little bit of solo, would get up and sing. And, and quite frankly, most of the people in the pews cringed while this was going on, but kind of placated the individuals like, well, they love the Lord, and they're honest about all of this. And, and this individual, I think, aspirations of becoming the next Sandy Patty or something, whoever was popular at the time. But the vast majority of people around this individual knew, you know, the the base talent that is necessary is simply not 
there. Is there also a time when you need to engage in that self-talk that, that allows you to see things honestly, that there might be somebody who, for example, aspires to be a radio talk show host and feels as if they've got what it takes, but doesn't really recognize, maybe I'm talking about myself here, <laughs> doesn't recognize they don't have the base skills necessary. And so as a result, they could be doomed for failure simply because, quite frankly, they've not had that that matter of self-honesty to say, you know, maybe this isn't for me. Yeah, I, I think the easiest person to deceive is yourself, mm. right? I mean, this this is so true in so many circumstances. And yeah, and, and you know, one of the, one of the points I think the Bible teaches is that God's will often just makes sense. And and by the way, when it when it doesn't make sense in the here and now, in hindsight, it almost always makes sense. You know, God's will is more often seen through the rearview mirror than the windshield. When you look backwards, you see it, but when you look forwards, sometimes it's, it's unclear. And so you know, we we have this absolute propensity to, to deceive ourselves. And so you know, one of the things I think we have to do you know, when we start answering these big questions about life and making these big decisions about our lives is that I think we need to have a good, honest self-assessment. We, we need to pray the prayer of David, which, you know, God, search me and show me if there's any wickedness inside of me. And, and you know, along the way to find the weakness, weak, wickedness, we also find a lot of weaknesses along the way. And, and you know, God... God doesn't waste his miracles on on trying to make bad vocalists famous. <laughs> more often than not, he uses his miracles in ways that are that are much much more significant for his kingdom. There's another important lesson here. Maybe it's a good note to to end our conversation on. I am reminded in Scripture that God will give us the desires of our heart, but God also tells us that we should seek first His kingdom and all of his righteousness, and then all these things will be added unto us. And so at the end of the day, um, if our heart is focused on him, if our ultimate desire is to walk in a rich, deep, profound relationship with him, then whatever those other ancillary desires might be, God will indeed fulfill them. But it really comes back to having that focus on not what we're doing, but who we are and in our relationship with him. Doesn't it, Johnny? It's exactly right. And, And if you focus on that, and it's amazing how your desires are suddenly what his desires are for you. And these questions get a little bit simpler. You you end up kind of being in the heart of God's will by accident. And, and because God's will is, well, it, it sort of takes care of itself if you're taking care of your relationship with the God whose will you want to follow. Some solid advice from Johnny Moore, the book called What Am I Supposed to Do With My Life? God's Will Demystified, again published by Thomas Nelson, available at Christian bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through the usual suspects, Amazon.com, etc., etc. Johnny has a website, too. You can check him out, Johnny, J-O-H-N-N-I-E, Moore, with two O's, Moore with an E, dot O-R-G. Johnny, thanks so much for the time. Always a pleasure. Take care now. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. 
Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.